Um, good morning. Um, my name is Matt Hutchings. Uh, I'm a trainee pastor and an elder here, if we haven't met. Um, as you can probably imagine, uh, I wrote the bulk of this sermon um, before I watched Boris's announcement yesterday. An announcement which, uh, as Dan mentioned just now, we'll um, have very different feelings about. But uh, as I reflected last night, uh, I was reminded of the relevance of God's word. God's word is not bound by time and circumstance. Isaiah 40 verse 8 tells us, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. God's word doesn't only have something to say to us when it speaks to us in the, in the precise moment which we're in, it, it stands above our human predicaments. Because God stands above our human predicaments. He is just as much our rock, our Lord and our saviour now, as he was a week ago, as he was 20 years ago, if we've been a believer for a long time, and as he will be on our deathbeds. And though we may come to his word differently, though our applications and implications from it may change, God does not change. And his word does not change. So, so let's bear that in mind as we come to him hungry this morning. Let me pray again now. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this word from Mark 10. We pray that you will speak to us. Amen. Um, setting aside the um, events of the last few days and the last eight months or so, I think this would have been a very different sermon had I been asked to give it two or three years ago. Not because the Bible, the word of God changes, as we just considered, but because I've seen the marriages of two couples, both Christian, both dearly loved, disintegrate and end in divorce over the last couple of years. And I've been both privileged and pained to, at least in some sense, walk that path with these couples and see the tears and the pain firsthand. And so I think this will be a very different sermon to the one I might have given had I spoken on this passage two or three years ago. Not because the Bible or because God has changed, but because I have changed because I've seen a little more clearly the brokenness of the world we live in. A brokenness which marriage is not immune from. A brokenness which nothing is immune from. I know there'll be many listening in who've been touched by these issues personally. Some will have been through the pain of divorce themselves Others may be considering it or finding marriage to be more of a burden than a blessing at the moment. Others um, find themselves uh, previously married, but alone, not through divorce, but through death. Some will have seen broken relationships tear apart their families or churches. Others will have dealt professionally with the fallout of family life. 
many may feel that this has little relevance to them. You're single yourself. Your parents are or, or, or were happily married. Well, whatever your experience of these issues, let me encourage you not to switch off and disengage from God's word. Whether your marriage couldn't be going better or whether the thought of a happy marriage or a broken one so distant you don't want to contemplate it, let me encourage you to listen and hear what God has to say to you today. And if for no other reason, let me at least encourage you to listen because, and this is an observation that entirely comes from anecdotal evidence, but, but from chatting to couples within our church and beyond, I think the first lockdown was a huge strain on marriages, as it was for anyone sharing a household with other people. Couples were forced together in ways that they simply weren't used to, realising perhaps how fragile the basis for their marriage had become. And resolve tensions, suddenly much um, less hard to avoid with so little escape, escape from each other. So if you take nothing else from our time together now, let, let me encourage you during this new lockdown to pray for marriages, to pray for your own if you're married, to pray for others. For they are not immune from the brokenness of the world we live in. Um, for note takers, um, this sermon will have just one point, really. Um, God's good picture of marriage. God's good picture of marriage. But um, before we dig into that point, it's worth um, stepping back from the passage for a moment um, to consider it clearly. Because it's famous, um, these verses, for being one of the, the go-to Bible passages about divorce. So it gets the title, Divorce, in our NIV Bibles. But what's the context of this conversation? Because Jesus was speaking to a particular group of people on a particular day, in a particular place, with a particular background of cultural understandings and contexts. And look down at verse two. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Did you spot it? This was not a genuine question. This was a test. Verse two, they came to test him. This was not the question of someone suffering in a difficult marriage or someone coming to Jesus in their brokenness, having gone through divorce. No, this was a test. And it was a clever test. Why? Well, because it had a political context. You may remember that in Mark chapter six, Mark told us that John the Baptist was beheaded for opposing the marriage of Herod to Herodias, his brother's divorced wife. So this is the perfect opportunity to get Jesus in trouble with Herod. And also it had a religious context. And divorce was actually fairly commonplace in first century Palestine. And for Jewish believers, the question wasn't so much whether divorce was permitted, that was agreed. The question was on what grounds, uh, with some groups arguing it should only be allowed for sexual immorality uh, and others arguing for a freer interpretation. Which side was Jesus going to come down on? So this was not a genuine question. It was a test. And, and look at the tone of the question in verse two. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Is it lawful? Is it permissible? Is it allowed? Is it okay? It reminds me of um, the question my sister used to ask as a child when she played out on the street with her friend about how far away they could go from our house. Is it okay to go as far as the lamppost? What about the lamppost after that? What about the lamppost after that? And lying um, unstated behind the question is this huge um, amorphous blob of stuff we know it's definitely not okay to do. And lying behind it as well is the ducking of responsibility. How far will you let me go? It's on you, the question says, you decide. It's, a, it's not a good question. And as he so often did, Jesus threw it straight back at them in verse three. What did Moses command you? He replied, you tell me, says Jesus, what does the Bible say? Well, the Pharisees, of course, saw this question coming. They whip out their Bibles, they turn up Deuteronomy and they play their ace card in verse four, quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verse one. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. You can almost imagine the smugness on their faces. It's okay, see, it says it right here. Like the child who's got a no from one parent, but a yes from the other. It's one nil to the Pharisees. This conversation is playing out exactly how they have planned. And one more thing about this question and why it's a bad question. Do you see the attitude to women here? They barely get a mention. This isn't kind of struggling couple get divorced. This is kind of man send away his wife. Well, it's one nil to the Pharisees, they think. But Jesus isn't done. Because verse five doesn't read. Ah, oh, well, Jesus replied, if Moses said it, then I suppose. No. Look down at verse five with me. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. And suddenly we see that the Pharisees have got it so wrong. Yes, Moses said they could divorce. But my word, this was not a license, something to celebrate, a freedom from the shackles of marriage that they should relish and make the most of. No. It was because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus says, that Moses allowed you to do this. Equating these first century Pharisees with the generation who died in the wilderness under Moses. You see, this, this permission to divorce, is a, it was a concession, a protection, something put in place to stop vulnerable women from being cast out on the street with nothing. Now at least they would have a formal piece of paper telling them that they'd been divorced and were free to remarry. It was because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus said. But the Pharisees, well, they've taken what Moses what God gave them as a kindness, and they've turned it into a license to sin. Coming to Jesus, not about what is good, what is best, what is right with their question, but what is allowed, what they can get away with. Turning what God gave them as a kindness into a license to sin. And I wonder, I wonder, don't we sometimes do that too? 
we won't spend long on it now, want to go away and think about perhaps. But don't we sometimes come to Jesus asking not what is good, what is best, what is right, but what is allowed, what we can get away with? I know I definitely do. It's perhaps most obvious in relationships, in, in Christian dating. But I think it rears its ugly head, this attitude, in almost every area of our Christian lives. We come to God not asking how we can serve him, what he wants for us, how we can bless others, what's best. But asking what we can get away with, what is allowed. As if we're children and able to listen to what he's told us already in the Bible, and able to listen to our consciences, and able to choose wisely for ourselves and take responsibility for our decisions. We, um, we won't spend any longer there now, but want to go away and um, pray through with Jesus, and then perhaps chat through with a spouse, a friend, your home group. Because Mark wants us to be warned by the attitude of the Pharisees here. This is not an attitude that will get us anywhere good with God. Well, that um, was, by way, a very lengthy introduction. Um, let's move on now to, to the bulk of what Jesus has to say in response to the Pharisees' question. Because this passage it isn't really about divorce, is it? It's about marriage, God's good picture of marriage. Let's read verses six to nine again. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus responds to their closed question about what's allowed regarding divorce by zooming over the head of Moses and returning to the very beginning of the Bible to God's good creation plan in Genesis. And um, instead of engaging in the debate about what is allowed, he rather paints a picture of what is good, God's good plan for marriage. What do we see in this good picture Jesus paints? in summary we see that God has created human beings male and female verse 6 so that he can join them in marriage verses 7 to 8 a join which is to be for life verse 9 God's created human beings male and female verse 6 so that he can join them in marriage verses 7 to 8 a join which is to be for life verse 9 now, there's so much we could say on um, each clause of, of, of that statement. I'm conscious that time is short. I'm also conscious that we don't want to duck these issues. Uh, some of them are under great attack in the society we live in. So just very briefly, please do get in touch, um, preferably with our pastor, Dan, if you'd like to talk through any of these things more. But just very briefly. Um, first, God created gender. Verse six. God created human beings as male and female. That doesn't mean that God created masculinity and femininity as they are in our society today. There's no reason biblically why boys should be given balls to play with and girls should be given art materials. 
And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't deeply love those who struggle with their gender. Of course we should. But it does mean that God created human beings as male and female, of equal value, but different. And God said that it was good. Second, marriage matters. Verse seven. We uh, might rightly want to push back on the extravagance of the wedding market as Christians. And we absolutely want to value single people, as Jesus himself did in Matthew 19 and Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. But marriage matters. It isn't optional, traditional, economical. It's God-ordained for two people who want to form a permanent union. Third, Marriage is for one man and one woman, verse seven. Same-sex attraction is a temptation like any other. And the church absolutely needs to care for people for whom that is a struggle. But the formation of any long-term union that looks like marriage is for one man and for one woman. And so three things to bear in mind there, all of which would benefit from much more unpicking. But none of those three things, I don't think, are, are the crooks of what Jesus is saying here. Because I think what's most striking, most central to Jesus' teaching on marriage in this passage is the nature of the marriage bond and the basis of that bond. The nature and the basis of the marriage bond. First, it's nature. What actually happens when a man and a woman marry? Well, let me read verses seven to nine again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Just look at how many ways in just three verses Jesus describes what happens when a couple marry. They are united, verse 7. They become one flesh, verse 8. They are no longer two, verse 8. They are joined together, verse 9. The marriage union, it is something extraordinary, says Jesus, in its strength and in its intimacy. Why is it so exceptional? Well, because of the basis of this union. Verse nine, therefore, what God has joined together. We know those words from the marriage ceremony, but have we ever really thought about them? Marriage is not, not really the decision of a loved up couple, nor is it a minister, a registrar who brings a marriage into being. It is an act of God. An act of creation by God. God makes something new when a man and a woman unite in marriage. I wonder, is that how we think of marriage, whether we're married or single? Is that how we think of the marriage bond? Our society thinks of it as, as more like a sort of paper clipping together of two people quite loosely or nail that will over time pull out of the wall, or sellotape that will only stay sticky for so long. But is marriage not more like an irreversible chemical reaction? I'm sure you remember learning about them at school. 
a reaction that once it's taken place, cannot be undone. And so verse nine, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no human decreate what God has created. Perhaps we, I I think certainly I, need to raise my view of marriage to see God's good picture of marriage, this extraordinary union, a creation of God. But why the big deal about marriage, you might be thinking, especially those of us who are single. Well, I think Jesus makes such a big deal of marriage because of what marriage was created to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Not just something privately for two people to enjoy, but a picture for the church, for the world to see, of the relationship between Christ and the church. Familiar verses for many probably, but in Revelation 21 verse 2, John describes God's people coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In Ephesians 5 verse 25, Paul commands husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God has given society, he's given the church marriage because marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, between God and us. Not all of us, We'll walk down the aisle or stand at the front in our own earthly weddings. But my word, if we are believers in Christ, we will all walk down the aisle on that final day at that final wedding. The wedding, that all earthly weddings are only the dimmest picture, the faintest of shadows of. The marriage of God to us, his people. And so marriage matters. Marriage matters because Christ's relationship with the church matters. Because God's relationship with us matters. Marriage is the most extraordinary union of two people because in Christ we have been brought into the most extraordinary union, a union, an intimacy, a closeness between God and us. And marriages are not to be brought to an untimely end because Christ's love for the church will not be brought to an untimely end. God's love for us will never. And what does it say to the world about God's love for us when Christian marriages can't even last a human lifetime? Marriage matters. Marriage is infinitely precious. Whether we are personally married or not. Because marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Between God and us. And it goes even deeper than that. For isn't marriage a picture of God himself? For our God is a trinity. One God 
but three persons, the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Three persons constantly and continuously relating to each other in love. In a mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. We do not have a God who sits cold, alone, aloof on his throne, like Miss Havisham left at the altar in Dickens' Great Expectations. We have a God who is love. 1 John 4 verse 8. When we become Christians, um, Tim Keller writes, reflecting on C.S. Lewis's words in uh, Keller's book, King's Cross, we join that dance, Keller says. We join the eternal, wonderful, glorious, loving dance of the three members of the Trinity. And we enter that dance, whether we are married on earth or not. Though marriage surely gives us a little glimpse of what that dance is like, of the extraordinary love within God himself. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I think whether single or married, I need to raise my view of marriage. I encourage you to, too, so that we can see God's good picture of marriage. So where does that leave us this Sunday morning? Well, I think it leaves us with two conclusions, two applications. The first, marriage is important, so treasure it. Marriage is important, so treasure it. If you're married, love your husband or wife, cherish them, enjoy their love for you. Let it show you just a tiny bit of God's great love for you. And use your marriage to show everyone else God's great love. If you're single, and this is easy for me to say I know as a married man, but celebrate marriage too, treasure marriage too. Don't resent the marriages of others or focus only upon your desire to get married. Nip jealousy in the bud, repent of it. Rather pray for the marriages around you. But I, I wonder, going back to those of us who, who are married, whether there's a greater challenge to married couples here as well. Because isn't it interesting in this brief few chapters on discipleship, Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10, marriage is one of the topics that Mark chooses to address. For Mark, marriage is one of the key parts of your discipleship and your Christian living, if you are married. And I wonder, is that how we think of it? If it's not audacious for me to say, I think God is more interested in the quality of your marriage than in your parenting, your service at church or elsewhere, whatever ministries you may or may not feel called to, your giving, your friendships. But it's so easy, I speak from personal experience, especially with children on the scene, to sort of become like ships in the night, each separately pursuing your areas of service, your interests, your social lives. And of course, married people should be serving and socialising and need friendships outside of um, the their married couple. But after your walk with God, your spouse should be, they must be 
your greatest priority. Perhaps as we re-enter a period of lockdown, this is an opportunity for married couples before you fill up your evenings with Zoom calls to consider how, by the grace of God, you can make sure that your marriage not only survives the lockdown, but grows through it. Maybe now's the time to, to start doing quiet times together, to read a Christian book together, or to regain some of the physical intimacy that you've perhaps lost. Marriage is important, so treasure it. And secondly, marriage is broken, so come to God in grace through and despite it. This, of course, what Jesus outlines here is God's good plan for marriage. Marriage is meant to be good. It's not to be held lightly, but it is meant to be good. And sometimes, as we said at the beginning, in our sinful world, marriages fall apart. There is pain, there is abuse, there is brokenness that those in the marriage do not manage to move on from. Reconciliation that doesn't manage to be achieved. Marriage is no more immune from the brokenness of our world than anything else. And it can be so easy to use divorce as a brush of Christian judgment that we tarnish other people with. Failing to see those of us who are single or, or happily married, how a couple could ever get themselves into so bad a situation that divorce seems to be the only way out. But let us not judge. Let us not judge, especially if we haven't walked hard paths in marriage ourselves. And while we don't want to ignore or undermine God's good picture of marriage that Jesus gives us here, let us not use it as a rod to break struggling sinners back. For what ultimately matters before God on that final day is not whether you can present a marriage that survived every trial. It is whether you stand clothed in the blood of Christ. For Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me pause for a few moments now and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the good gift of marriage. Good for a couple who are married, but good for the whole of church. Thank you for what marriage is designed to show us. Your love for us. The love within the Trinity. And Father, we repent of our sin when it comes to marriage, those of us who are married and, and those who are single. And Father, we pray that we will come to you and know your grace. Amen.